Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. That work said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. Here's part two of my interview with Dick Rutan. So the challenge that you and your brother came up with was to fly around the world in a craft without stopping, without refueling. In the next handful of days, he designed the airplane. You know, the three of you sketched it out about its configuration. And I looked at that and then I was so excited about it, I thought that financing would be a piece of cake. It wasn't. Maybe it was too far out. And looking back, I don't blame a lot of those companies thinking, you're going to do what with what? No, there's no way. They're all cowards, but maybe they were more prudent. <laughs> you can't blame it for that. So then we're off in this grand adventure with all these insurmountable problems and learning. And the three of us, Bruce Evans, walked through the door one day and the three of us built that airplane. It took us 22 months. We begged for the carbon fiber, the Nomex paper, honeycomb, core, uh, all of it. it. was all didn't have any money to pay anybody. And How did you manage that? I don't know. Well, think of all the problems. You have no money. And Bert comes up and he says, he'll design it, but you guys got to build it. You know, I'll design it, you build it and fly it. You know, we met with Ross Perot, Baron Hilton, uh, a lot of the major companies. And then after, I think, a year and a half, we'd spent all of our savings and we're flat broke. And we had no prospects of anything. And normally, if you think, well, we got to build an airplane bigger than a 737 out of carbon fiber that's just strong but paper light, and then we need avionics and radars and long-range communications and engines and propellers and all that, all that systems. How in the hell are we going to do that? But then I'd go out and I'd sit down by the hangar and I'd look out, close my eyes, and just not give up. Deal them as they came. But then as that, as that thing evolved, as uh, it evolved, and we finally, we finally built it, built the airframe. And nobody would, nobody would sponsor. Well, we got product sponsors. There's a guy named Walt Jones, really cool guy. And he worked for Hercules Fiber up in Salt Lake City where they make carbon fiber. And he goes in, see, he knew about our program. And he goes to his boss and he says, boss, look at this. Look at this thing. Look at the notoriety we're going to get by using our carbon to do this new thing. And the guy says, what? You're crazy. He threw Walt Jones out a bunch of times. And in fact, we started building the airplane with Walt Jones's uh, salesman's samples. <laughs> salesman's sample. 
of this guy that got thrown out and thrown out and thrown out. And Walt tells the story. He says, finally went in there one, again one day and the boss looked at him and says, God damn it, Walt, I'm so pissed off about seeing you. He says, okay, we'll give him the card. And so if you say, if you get no enough, eventually there'll be a yes. Now, was there ever a point in the building of it where you said, I got to give up? Yeah, every day. Every day. How did you deal with that? How did you not? I walk out there and I close my eyes and I try to imagine how it could feel to pull up in front of a cheering crowd at Edwards Air Force Base, having accomplished aviation's last first. Think about that. And I just close my eyes. It would take a handful of seconds to permeate in my mind. I'd stand up. And there's another technique that I use besides flying around and look at the problems. And the other technique was exercise. And I knew that I had to be in absolute, the best physical shape to do this. And I had to be as skinny as possible. So it was a weight saving thing. And I got my weight down because, you know, every ounce, in fact, we cut Gina's hair off to save weight. Replaced by fuel would take us almost a quarter of a mile, the weight of her hair. So we were fanatical about weight saving. I mean, fanatical, like we'd only paint parts of the airplane and then we sand most of the paint off for just milligrams. And of course that led to a lot of other problems too. So let's talk about the trip. So you take off, um, you've still got all these problems you're dealing with. Um, take me through the, the nine days. Well, uh, let me talk. Uh, well, we flew the airplane on a couple of old junk engines and Bert had to get it to Oshkosh and it was way premature. A uh, handheld battery-powered radio, two old, worn-out, way-past overhaul engines that we, Bert calls it, we give him a Mexican overhaul. It's squirting 409 on the outside and cleaning it up with a rag. That was the overhaul. And we flew it to Oshkosh, and Bert wanted us to do three or, f three or four days back and forth. I mean, way premature. And he still thinks that I was cowardly because I didn't go and do that. He says... He says, I couldn't even get Dick to fly the airplane overnight. And I says, Bert, this airplane is a very special airplane, and it's very unique, and we spent a lot of time building it. And my philosophy was, I was not going to risk this airplane one iota for a risk that wasn't required to get it around the world. Like we have LA, they come up with helicopters and they want to do filming and stuff. They gave us some money. I says, and I knew that air-to-air -air photography is about the second most dangerous thing you can do in flight. <laughs> Look at all the situations. And that was, it didn't have anything to do with getting us around the world. Then we weren't going to do it. Uh, trying to save weight, we got a propeller from Europe. And it, one blade came off, tore the engine off the airplane. <laughs> had a cockpit fire. We had a, uh, the controllability was incredible. I mean, it was horrible. It was almost, you almost had no control over the airplane, no lateral directional stability. It would diverge in and pitch oscillations. The heavier you got, the more it diverged. So what, it, what happened was, is you let go of the stick and 15 seconds later, the airplane would self-destruct unless you grabbed the controls and did some magic stuff. Now here's another example of things we ran into. Uh, theoretical aerodynamicists, theoretical guys. Stay the frick away from those guys, they'll kill you. This one guy's name is John Rotz, God bless his soul. And he's really a neat guy, a, a certified genius. And so he made a computer program, uh, a computer program for the airfoils, the design of them, the shape of the airfoil. And the canard, the canard was the weirdest airfoil that I'd ever seen, really strange. But he said, oh no, it has very low, low drag counts and, and uh, but there's one thing that he got in his, in his computer program. He should have put a button in there that says, what happens in rain? Never did it. We built the airplane. And, you know, in the canard arrangement, the canard lifts 40% and the back wing is 60%. They're divided. So any change in lift or coefficients would change your pitch dramatically. And that's how you control it in pitch, for, you know, a canard airplane. And so, and therefore, I was working great. Had good flying qualities as far as pitch goes, 
So anyway, we're flying around up here in Mojave and we look over there and on the other end of the valley, over by Barstow, we look and there's a rain shower, a virga, you know, thank God it was long and thin. And I thought, I wonder if this thing will fly in rain. If we're going around the world at the equator, we'll probably get into a rain shower. You think? You think, okay. So we fly over there and not thinking much about it, you know, Gina's there, and I have a backpack parachute, and Gina has a chest pack parachute. She wears the harness, and, and she clips it on. And this is before we got all the fancy equipment on the airplane with the radars and the liquid-cooled engines and that sophistication. So we're flying over there, and I punch into this weather. And just before you could see the rain, it pitched up a little bit, and as soon as the rain hit, they destroyed over half of the CL of the canard. Now, if you change it 100 to 1% change, it, you can have a pitch thing, you know, and that's how you control pitch with an elevator on the canard. Okay, the thing pitched over and started heading for the desert floor in rain. Now, we're in good rain shower. It's raining pretty good, but we lost all the lift on the canard. So we're going down. I'm trying everything, full forward, full half stick, engines up, engines back, nothing. Everything that I could do was nothing. And I sat there and thinking, you know, we're gonna die. I can't turn, I can't get out of it, I can't pull out. And I told Gina, I says, get your parachute on, you're getting out. And so she went back, got her parachute, clipped it on. And I was taking the, the canopy off for her to, to bail out. Because there's no chance of surviving this. And she says, well, what are you gonna do? He says, well, I'm gonna try to stay and save the airplane, but you're getting out. And she took her parachute off and threw it in the back. And he says, if you're staying, I'm staying. And, and I thought, you know, the absurdity of that, you know, you got a chance to bail out. You're not part of the flying the airplane. You're, you're a passenger. Why don't you to bail out and live? And of course, I was kind of busy trying to figure this out. And it got, I got kind of mad at her, but there was really nothing I could do about it. So I reclipped the canopy locks back and started to go about, you know, trying to find. But I kept thinking we're going down and nobody will ever know what happened. John Runce will never know that his airfoil, which is great, had coefficient of lift was great, and the drag count was low. He will never know the fact that he never thought about rain and now we're gonna die. And there'd be wreckage all over the Eastern Mojave Desert. Nobody would ever know why, what happened. And I'm, I'm thinking about that when I finally the realization that this is over. You know, I thought, well, you know, should I tense up or, or what when we're going to impact? And then fortunately, as a mare's tail, as you know, they're kind of long and skinny, bands of rain, and we flew through it. And, you know, we're getting lower and lower, and you resigned, hey, this is it. What a, what a shitty way to die. At least we died in, in some type of an adventure. But then all of a sudden I could see that the rain was getting lighter and lighter and lighter, but I kept looking at the ground coming up. It was getting lighter and lighter, you know, you hope against hope. And then finally it started to dry off just enough. And when the rain got off the canard shape, and we pulled out. And we weren't in the weeds, but it was low enough. <laughs> and most people would think that, that we were in the most danger that day, but it turns out we, we were not. Bert was the most in danger that day. As we came back and landed in Mojave, he wasn't at, he's alive today because he was not at the hangar. And I called him on the phone and told him what happened. And he said, well, don't fly in the rain. You're flying around the world. You well, go. I mean, it was just the absurdity yeah. of that whole thing. So. Yeah. And, well, don't fly in the rain. And, and it just hit me. <laughs> Here we just came a hair's breadth of dying because somebody screwed up and didn't understand what, what, uh, what rain would do to lift and it damn near killed us. But the, 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 the uh, fortuitous that that rain shower presented itself that we could find out. Because the next you were going to need that information. Yeah, well, the next rain that we flew into was going through a, a typhoon feeder band over Guam. That's the next time we flew into a rain. And well, talk, let's talk about the takeoff and, and all of the yeah, attendant, well, you know. So before we go back, he put it in a wind tunnel and put some vortex generators and he fixed that. But we never tested it. But the next time we flew and we hit these rain in that typhoon and 
no trim change worked perfectly. So that was good. But, but, and I kept thinking, we'd have been lost over Guam and nobody would have ever known what happened. John would have never known what happened. There were so many things that happened in this airplane. It's controllability, it's weight, buildup, massive things. Uh, structural integrity, but anyway, the, it, and all of a sudden we rounded up after five and a half years, a lot of volunteers from a lot of things. There was 99 volunteers at one time or another with all kinds of incredible expertise in weather and communications and uh, many things. And then we're getting close to being ready to go. And I thought, I looked at those people one day and I thought, you know something, if we go out and get killed, they're going to feel really bad. And they probably will not know what happened. You know, if we turn into a Amelia Earhart, you know, they'll look for a while, never see any, never find anybody. And the likelihood with this Voyager was really high. And so I made a death tape. I made a death tape, we called it, and it was to be played to all the volunteers if we didn't make it back. And uh, the manager, I gave, we made this tape, and I gave it to him, and he says, if we don't make it, then I want you to get everybody together, and I want you to play this for them. And, uh, and, and the message of it, we set it up, you know, I'm Cecil B. DeMille Dick, see? So I set up a camera at the end of the long runway, and I put it on a tripod, I told him to start it, and I want you to leave. And then, looking down the runway, then we walked into frame, right up to the camera, and we had this message. And after the message, we turned around and walked down the runway and just kind of faded away. But the message was, don't sue anybody like the Challenger people did. The survivors of those brave, seven brave astronauts had the selfish audacity to sue the country that they, that they gave their lives for. I, I thought, to me, that was just hideous. It's the flag, and they did that. And all the other people that had died in support of that flag, but it's in combat or technology. And so I told him, I says, it says, if anybody sues anybody over this, we all knew it was high risk. We took the risk. Don't go out and get an attorney and sue somebody. If you do, we'll haunt you and your kids and your great grandkids through eternity. So don't disgrace this program by doing that. And the second message was that I knew that all of you came here to be part of this project. And all of you tried really hard. And unfortunately, it didn't turn out successful. But you should not be, you should not be sad about that. You should be damn proud of the fact that you came here and tried. And it's not a crime to fail. It's only a crime to not try. And you should be proud of it. And not one of you should ever think that you were the reason that this thing failed. And I know every one of you did a great job. And then I says, uh, I says, I'll see some of you sooner and some of you later. And we turned around and walked into oblivion. Thanks for joining us on American Achievers. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to access our exclusive premium content, visit us at AmericanAchievers.us or search for American Achievers at Patreon.com. For a few bucks a month, you get to access our monthly email newsletter the monthly American Achievers Extra audio program, and the quarterly Zoom show, American Achievers Green Room, where you get to interact with one of our accomplished and intriguing guests. For details, visit AmericanAchievers.us and click on the premium membership button. Want to learn about my eight books, including biographies of Paul Bear Bryant, Joe Montana, and Francis Gary Powers? Visit KeithDonovan.com or your favorite bookstore. My latest, Speed, The Life of a Test Pilot and the Birth of an American Icon. It's all about Bob Gilliland and the development of the super-secret SR-71 Blackbird spy plane. Now back to the program. Tell me about the launch day. The launch day... Uh... You know, there's a teaser that I have. It's four and a half minutes. It's, we did the audio version of the thing. Where, it, where can people find that? Uh, it's on my webpage, and it's it's the book sales. And you can 
And that's, you have a new book now, The Next Five Minutes. Yeah, it's called The Next Five Minutes, and it's... Uh, DickRutan.com. Yeah, DickRutan.com. Uh, you go on the webpage, it comes up, and there's one button you can push, and you can buy the book. <laughs> you know, PayPal and all that stuff. And the other button you push, you get a little teaser, and it runs about four minutes. And it describes that morning, sitting in the runway, sitting on the end of the runway. Uh, and that's why this book is, the book, The Next Five Minutes is not a technical book. If you want to know how many fuel tanks the airplane had, it ain't in here. Or how we did the nautical mile per pound of fuel, it's not in here. Uh, my wife, that I just met after the Voyager program, uh, my girlfriend then, new wife, she sat around listening to some of my lectures. And I'm a technical guy, and I think that everybody ought to know all the technical things that we're challenged with. She come up and she says, she says, Dick, nobody gives a frick about how many fuel tanks the airplane had. She says, tell them what was in your heart. She's right. And the whole thing changed after that. Uh, I got my, my talks, my lectures, you know, it's all about dreams and motivations and uh, how do you, you know, how do you manage with all those things? What did it feel like? How, why did you want to do this? What burned inside you to make you want to take something that seemed impossible to so many people? Well, like I said way back, you know, you look up and here you're a new pilot and you're looking at the world and you're a really long person, you know, you get your whole life ahead of you. What do you want to do? The major part of it, of this 60, 80 years that you're going to live from now on. And he says, I want to do, always, I want to do something significant. Didn't know what it was, but I want to have done it as a pilot. Not as, a, not as an engineer or an athlete or something. I want to do some, something significant and do it as a pilot. That was my goal. And so this little eight-year-old kid or 10-year-old kid, he went in, he walked out into life and he started looking around for those things. That may have been one of the motivation that I wanted to go to Misty. I thought, hey, this is my only opportunity to distinguish myself having done it as a pilot. Okay, I thought that was it. I had no idea that this baby brother of mine had some some wild idea that would eclipse that. Uh, how in the huge. world, how, how is it even possible to carry enough fuel to get around the world? <laughs> how do you put your arms around that? Uh, I think even today, well, that's not true either. Because 20 years later, somebody else did it. And they utilized all the technology and they did it, but nobody cares about how anybody did it second. You know, Charles Lindbergh was a big hero. Uh, he flew New York to Paris, right? 20 years later, you can buy a ticket and get a sleeping berth and a hot meal in New York to Paris. No big deal, right? So after the Voyager flew around the world with no, no internet, no GPS, no money, some billionaire comes along 20 years later with all the technology he had and, and did it again. You know, BFD, big fine deal. Okay, did it second. Nobody cares about second. But there, the the motivation was a thing that's called, it's a milestone. It's not a record. Shoot, you know how many aviation records that I have? And over half of them are still, they're still valid today, 30 years later. But they're propeller records, uh, piston, propeller, distance, and speed records that we did way back in the, in the 60s. But to go back to the takeoff that morning, you know, I had more and more apprehensions about this thing. I says, look at all the stuff, all the problems we have. You know, the problems, uh, Gene and I broke up, we weren't even talking to each other, our romantic relationship ended, so we weren't even talking. And then, and, and we flew it for two and a half years and 360 flight test hours, and 68 flights, individual flights, test flights. And some of those flights, a lot of them ended up in, in, with the magic word, Mayday. And I went in, I did a Mayday call into Vandenberg Air Force Base one day, and many into Edwards Air Force Base. And we don't need permission, as long as you know the magic word. <laughs> it's called Mayday. And then all those things that we're having, and we're having multiple problems with this and that, and structures and fly qualities and mechanical issues, and I thought, there was no fine way this thing was going to go around the world. And that's why we went out and broke the B-52 record in a closed course. We beat it by 10% or something. 
So we had the airplane had an absolute closed course distance, absolute distance record, uh, closed course distance record, and we beat it, and that was significant. However, to beat the absolute record, we only put thirty percent of the fuel on board the airplane, all kinds of food and water and back. And Gene and I went off the coast of California between San Francisco and Santa Barbara, sixty miles at sea, and shuttled for four and a half days. It was easy, broke the record, no problem. But to double that, <laughs> then that made it difficult. That, uh, How do you stay awake? Uh, yeah, the, <laughs> the, the, physio the physiology and the psychology of flying a Voyager was something that we ran into. And, and there was a lot of aspects of that, things that we didn't know. And, and one of the things that that almost got us a couple of times is that who was the pilot? What was the character of the pilot? He's damn shit on fighter pilot. Fighter pilot's gonna do anything. I never even thought one instant that there would be any human challenge for Dick Rutan to fly that airplane. You know, for 10 days. Didn't even dawn on me. We did the four and a half day flight and we learned a whole bunch of psychology about ourselves, about Maslow's order of hierarchy. And about when you're in when you're in danger, that all this, that all the senses for thirst, hearing, and your ability to sleep are suppressed. And so we went out there, and you're flying this airplane that maybe a, a, a little bit of light turbulence can take the wings off. And then you're looking over there, and all your abort fields are all fogged in, and you keep thinking of those little engines. If something happens, there's no abort. I'm stuck. So there's a level of anxiety every time you get even around the Voyager, much less fly the damn thing. Horrible flying airplane. Noise level, 110 decibel. There was only a, what is it, two or two and a half feet from the floor to the ceiling. You're kind of laying down. I mean, how do you deal with that level of discomfort for uh, that period of time? Well, it goes, it goes back to the level of, of anxiety. Bert says, why don't you and Gina just get in the airplane and, and live in it, practice living in it for three days in the hangar? I said, Bert, if you put her and I in that airplane, three hours later, I'd cut her throat or she would even cut mine. That's a metaphor. Don't get carried away. That's a metaphor. But when you're subjected to that, all of a sudden you're in, you're in an environment that Maslow's, Maslow's order, what happens to you when you're in intense pain? You don't thinking about, hey, I think I'll have a Big Mac. He says, well, you guys are calling the ambulance to come and uh, get, I think I'll just take a little nap here. Not when you're in intense pain. Time slows down, you're in agony, you're not worried about hunger, thirst, or sleep, or anything like that. Or you don't worry about some, some squeaky little bitch voice that gets on your nerves normally. You don't think about that. And what we learned on, on that other flight was we were relatively comfortable although we're kind of semi-supine, that uh, the level, we were deep in Maslow's second order, which is free from security. Security is really important. And if you're not secure, exactly the same things happen to you. You can't sleep, you're not hungry, you're not thirsty, none of that. All those are suppressed. And we never knew that when we took off on that four, day, four and a half day flight. Had plenty of food and water because weight wasn't any big thing. And we just depended on when we get thirsty or hunger, we'll have a drink. And what did you eat on the flight? I didn't eat anything. I, I never was never ever hungry. Remember the suppression of being hungry. But you. But, but water also. We landed from the floor. You ate nothing on nine for nine no, no, days. No, we ate something. Not getting ahead of the story. <laughs> okay. But but we didn't eat anything in the four and a half day flight. Yeah. I don't remember eating anything. Well, maybe there was uh, something, and didn't drink any. Had plenty of water, but was never thirsty. We landed extremely dehydrated, didn't even know it. Gina even passed out because her blood was so thick. First time I looked at my urine, it was it smelled and it was as thick as molasses in that color, which is a direct indication of your hydrated state. So I went to the doc and I said, hey doc, what the hell's going on? He says, God damn it, Dick, I've been trying to tell you about this for two and a half years. Said, well, you have my undivided attention. And then we started to learn about the physiology of it. And so we had ration. We had 10 days of rationed water. 
that we had to drink that mandatory, whether you were thirsty or not. I never remember thirsty, and I never can ever remember being hungry. Gina wanted me to eat, and I said, I'm too busy. I don't want to eat. I'm not hungry. But we had to force ourselves to eat a little bit. Uh, but it's Maslow's second order, uh, free from security. To sleep, you gotta, you got to feel secure. You know, your comfortable bed, that takes care of first order. You're secure, door's locked. Windows, you have, uh, as long as you can feel secure, then you can dream. And you can go to sleep and have dream and non-dream sleep and you can be rested. But if you're still in the same bed and you're still comfortable, none, none of that's changed. They take the roof off your house, they take a big crane, pick your bed up, swing it out over the Grand Canyon, and you notice that the rope is starting to flourish. <laughs> now you're still comfortable, right? But I challenge you to go back to sleep. So what you're telling me is, that the challenge of this was not just the the airplane and you know all of the mechanical pro it was psychology it was the psychology and it was big the psychology was really really big on this whole thing and here again the arrogance of this fighter pilot thought that uh, he could do anything physically you know the humility of saying what do you mean dick you think you would get tired what do you mean tired i'm a fighter pilot look at all the stuff i've done uh, i'm really good shape never even thought about it but if we hadn't done that four and a half day flight, we'd have lost the mission. Think about the humility of losing the mission <laughs> because of a human failure. Like, well, Bert, who had to land in uh, Sri Lanka because, yeah, I got tired. So, I mean, the hero fighter pilot says, well, I quit because I got tired. What you're saying is... See, there was no fine way that you could do ego, that. Ego, ego helped big time here. Uh, that is the perfect operable word, ego. The ego, ego. And, and, and the opportunity you had a responsibility to all those people that worked hard all those people that gave you like king radio gave us a quarter million dollars worth of avionics the carbon fiber cost a lot of money uh the airport gave us a big hangar to operate at no at no no charge and i had a responsibility to all those people until i got to the point as we got closer and closer to the flight i realized i'm freaking gonna die there's really no way there's really no way that I'm going to survive this. It's just, the odds are. I haven't gone 20, we haven't gone 20 hours flying time without a major mayday malfunction. And we're going to fly 10 days straight? There's no way. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. So you had resigned yourself that you weren't coming back. Okay, well, here's what happened. Uh, as I sat on the end of the runway that day, and I looked down that three-mile-long runway, and I looked at the... And we had 25% verbal argue, because he's a numbers guy. Uh, that much fuel on board. Like you put... Uh, we only had 75%. That's the heaviest we were fluid. So I put a whole bunch of more fuel on it, and at the end of the runway... And the more fuel we got, the more difficult it was to fly. I mean, the pitch oscillations were just getting really very, very significant. And so my worry was I couldn't even fly it. And I'm sitting on the end of the runway that morning with the engines running, looking down the runway and just copied our clearance. And I thought, I said, Dick, this is ridiculous. He says, you're probably going to be dead in the next five minutes. Ah, a title of a book. I get ahead of myself. But the point of that was important because the point was that I sat there that morning thinking I was probably going to be dead in the next five minutes. But then uh, the rational part would be, you know, your prefrontal cortex that said this is the rational part of this thing. This is stupid. Shut down the engines, unlock the little canopy, crawl over the side, and walk south into the desert, and you'd be alive tomorrow. But then I looked at all those volunteers and all the things that I said to them for all these years, come and help us. We need your talent. We need your expertise. We need your labor to come and help us. And they had a responsibility to those people. And you know? pride. Well, pride, but I was thinking more of the responsibility to them. You know, this is life and death. You know, your pride, you're not going to die for pride alone. There's got to be another reason. And then the humility. And I realized if I got out that tomorrow morning I was going to have to shave the face of a guy that quit. And another thing, mom's voice. The only way to fail she never left you. is if you quit. 
And those words, there were really, in the book, we talked about three or four very significant things that we should have aborted. And when I was in the process of quitting and aborting, uh, different, I mean, dramatic circumstances, mom's voice is clear as a bell. The only way to fail is if you quit. And we didn't quit. We just kept going, knowing that within the next four hours out over the Indian Ocean, I was going to be dead. And I gave up a beautiful runway on a subtropical island with a beautiful beach and a Mai Tai and rest that I could go to sleep. And I gave all of that to go and die in the next five minutes. Now think about how, you know, how deep you have to dig into your character to do that. Because after all, you get to a certain point where you have fatigue, you have all these things. The easiest thing in the world you can do is give up. Is just quit. I mean, think about this. I'm halfway around the world. I've hardly had any sleep at all. I sat in the seat for three nights. I was going into the fourth night without once getting out of the seat for a sleep. And I said, Dick, <laughs> you may be a shit-out fighter pilot, but you go four nights with no sleep. The fourth night, you can't make it. And so I crawled out of the seat and went to sleep. But as soon as I got out, an hour or two later, something happened with Gina, and she didn't talk to the controllers, and they were all pissed off. And you had all sorts of, you had this typhoon that you went through. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, that was another thing. Uh, My wife keeps saying that you have an angel on your shoulder, and she thinks she's, the angel's getting tired. No, we're going along, uh, we're going, there's right over Guam, and there's Typhoon Marge, and Typhoon Marge is going northwest on a direct line to Taiwan. Now, if we go along the bottom side of that, we're going to have headwinds. We can divert way to the south, tremendous headwinds. In fact, the headwinds would probably be so strong that I would have negative ground speed. That would have ended the flight right there. So the only way is to go around the top of that typhoon where I have a tailwind. And so my weather guy, uh, Lynn Snellman, he has a direct line to the weather god. He's only one guy on planet Earth that did that. He called up the weather god and he turned that goddamn typhoon for us just enough to let us go by. And that's not a word of a lie. And he called me and he says, Dick, we got an issue here. He says, we can go around the top of this thing and get a good tailwind, but they're forecasting they're forecasting it to go direct to Taiwan, you know, right across our path. He says, I think that there's a chance that that thing may level off just long enough for you to get by. <laughs> and, uh, and he was right. We started at the top and that damn thing leveled off uh, parallel to the equator before it turned northwest and headed for Taiwan. And we just barely, by the skin of our teeth, got by it. And then as soon as we got by, it made a you know, 45 degree right turn and, and headed for uh, Taiwan. Now, what was worse, that or Africa? Oh, every day was horrible. Tell so me what happened over Africa. Fucking every day. Uh, we had this propeller problem and other mechanical issues. And he says, hey, Dick, uh, we're going to miss the weather window. He says, and the weather window for a transglobal flight won't open again until whatever. And he says, well, we'll have to wait another year. Another year? Another year, yeah, until the weather window opened. And and I'd been at this thing a long time, and I looked at Snellman and says, look, he says, I was out front this morning. The wind was blowing. It's kind of rainy here. And he says, and I told him, he says, look, right now the weather is terrible. But the airplane's coming close to being mission ready. He says, I'll tell you what, Lynn. When that airplane is mission ready, we're going to tow it over. We're going to fly it over to Edwards. We're going to fill it up. And I'm going to fly it around the world. Now, you go back in that little weather room of yours, and you find us a way around the world. He says, yeah, we're a month and a half beyond the weather window. It's closed. I said, you go back and find me a way around the world. So he came back a day or so later, and he says, I think I got a way around the world. And I knew he would. He says, there's only one problem. I can't get you across Central Africa. 
So I got, we had a big world map out. And I look and the, the world map was about three yards wide. And Africa was only about four inches of that. I said, hell, that's Africa. I'll worry about that when we get there. Holy frick. And that was a bad time. In fact, uh, it was so bad that I have amnesia. I have no idea how we survived that. We had severe hypoxia, hypemic hypoxia, hypemic hypoxia, get high altitude. And we're going through thunderstorms, towering thunderstorms, trying to go around them in Central Africa. It's like the Amazon basin. The two worst places in the world are the Amazon basins for huge, vicious thunderstorms and Central Africa. In fact, those vicious thunderstorms that that start over the moist jungles of Central Africa, uh, the equatorial trade winds, they're, they're easterlies, by the way, at low altitude, they're the ones that were giving us a tailwind. The same things that blow those big storms out into the Atlantic and they ravage Florida and our Southeast coast. But we were riding that same wind that carries those storms there. So we were up going through that and I can remember severe hypoxia. Gina passed out. And, and what caused clammy. What caused that? Well, we're high altitude. We didn't turn the oxygen flow rate up enough. And I became hypoxic. And the last thing I remember is that the instrument panel has exploded like a balloon in my face and I was holding it in. And other there was other weird things happening. And uh, Gina had already passed out. I was thinking about you know, should I carry this dead person around the world? Uh, so I landed in another country that's landing with somebody dead on board. I was some thoughts going through my mind. And right in the book, as hard as I can, I cannot remember from going into that deep oxygen deprivation period. The next thing I remember is that it's, this is during the daytime. It was at night and we were 7,000 feet, smooth, black, inky black night, no clouds around, and we were all set up cruising. And I don't remember how we got there. I had no, absolutely no recollection whatsoever. And I talked to some psychologists and he says it was some type of amnesia, you know, people forget things. And uh, so, in fact, when we finally went feet wet over the Atlantic, I called home and I says, I says, Voyager Mission Control is Voyager 1. Do you know where we are? <laughs> Do you know where we are? And back in Mission Control, they thought, Dick's lost it. He didn't know where he is. He wants us to give him a position report. And he says, and then he called back and says, you want a position report? And then I realized, I says, no, you know where we are? We made it out of Africa. We made it out of Africa. And the first message we got when we crossed Africa, he said, do not attempt to cross Africa in the daytime. Orbit over the Indian Ocean and then only cross at night when the thunderstorms are low. Oh yeah, I'm gonna orbit out over the ocean for a day. <laughs> There's no way we're gonna do that. But the, the emotional thing, after going through this whole thing, there were two really highly emotional things that happened. And that when Bert finally let us go out over the Pacific Ocean that morning that we took off. And as we said our goodbyes and good lucks, and they turned away, and Bert looked at the Voyager, and he says, I'll probably never see my brother alive again. And then almost 10 days later, almost a week and a half later, he joined up on a flashing strobe light off the coast of San Diego, south of Long Beach, out of that dark night and rejoined, and Mike Melville was with him, and he rejoined on a flashing strobe light in this total black void. And he's looking at it, and we were talking to each other. And then that, that feeling, that haunting feeling was with him. And he looked at that strobe light, and I guess they thought it was me, but he had to have confirmation some way. You know, the doubt you have, the psychological doubt in your mind, is it really him? And so Bert called me and he says, Dick, just to, just to verify that it's you, turn the strobe light off. And it flashes, it flashes, and I turned it off 
and it stopped flashing. And then he says, okay, turn it back on. And that was the verification. When he starts start flashing again, the verification that that light was his brother at the Voyager. And we had enough fuel to fly the next two or three hours and landed Edwards Air Force Base. And he broke down and both Mike, all of us started crying like babies. Couldn't even talk on the radio. And then the sun come up and they could see the battered Voyager. Only this time its wings were, were level instead of contorted up, almost ready to break off. But the thing is that we went and orbited around and I come over the hill, I looked down and I saw all those people. The whole western end of the dry lake was covered with tens of thousands of cars and people and stream all the way back into Lancaster. And did you know that the that whole morning. country, no. to a certain extent, the I whole had world was watching this? I had absolutely no idea. Well, Bert was trying to tell me that, but I kept thinking, this is just a little home built from crummy little, some crummy little desert town, and we're going to fly around the world. Only this time, there was nothing wrong with the airplane, and I could not legally call Mayday to land at Edwards. And I thought, holy bananas, there's nothing wrong. Now, remember, I've been awake and punch drunk and you know, all the noise for a week and a half. It does something to you. And, it was that, and that was still back in my mind someplace, so I called Edwards Towers. Edwards Tower, we're about 20 minutes south. I know you're really busy. You know, there's flight test of B-1s and big military. I know you're really busy. But if you just let me orbit around and I'll land in a remote area of the dry lake, and, and I won't interfere with any of your traffic. And the tower came back and he was confused. He says, he says, sir, we've canceled flying for today and we're all here waiting for your return. And I couldn't freaking believe it. They canceled flying for this little home-built airplane. And we were not aware that anybody even cared about it or even watched it at all other than home builders and maybe some people from the EAA. I didn't think anybody would even know about it. How did it hit you? that this crazy, impossible idea that you and your brother cooked up has captivated the whole country. Uh, the, the, to put it all in a nutshell about emotion and, and goal seekings and uh, motivation and stuff, for all those years, I sat by myself on the ramp and looked out over that desert, that high desert of California. And I close my eyes and try to imagine what it would feel like to accomplish aviation's last milestone. What would it feel like? And just try to imagine it with your eyes closed. And I thought it would feel pretty good. Then you open your eyes and that's the motivation. You get up and you just hammer at it again, whatever the case is. And then we ordered it around and I touched down and landed. After nine days, three minutes, and 44 seconds, we flew 26,358 statute miles, nonstop, non-refueled. And it pulled up in front of all those cameras and shut the engines off. And, and the noise was painful. The, the, the silence was painful after the noise. And then when they shut it down, and then the FAI inspector had to go inspect all the seals, remove the bear graphs to prove so they could certify the record that we didn't cheat. And I closed my eyes sitting there that morning and put my head back and closed my eyes. And you know something? It felt every bit as good as it had for five years. The feeling. How did that achievement change you? Well, it was dramatic. And, and the sad part of it was, is that I was not at all prepared for what was going to happen. I really needed somebody to help me because I had no idea what was going to happen. And unfortunately, we got some uh, people that were probably, did not have our best interest at heart. And uh, well, I caught them and there was a lawsuit. And finally, I just walked away from the whole thing. And what do you think your mother would have said? Well, yeah, she, yeah, she wasn't there, was she? Uh, I suspect she was there. My mother was always proud of her two boys. Uh, her, her whole life was involved in 
her two boys. That's all she talked about. Well, she'd have been damn proud because all those words that she said made it possible. You know, I was I was over over Sri Lanka, and uh, we had indication that we had a coolant leak in the engine. The, the liquid cooled engine, the leak it was leaking, a seal was leaking, and and we're over a nice airport, and we're, uh, I mean, beautiful subtropical airport and Mai Tais and the feet in the beach and the and the white coral beach and the azure brew, you know how it is, it's lagoons. And and I'd been awake for so long and so goddamn tired. And I looked down there and I fantasized what it would feel like to just roll out and stop and go to the most beautiful, peaceful sleep. I'd give anything for that. And but the motivation was I'm gonna abort and it will not be my fault. That seal finally gave out on the coolant pump. This is it, I got it made. We're gonna save the airplane. And, and I just kept thinking about that Mai Tai and putting my feet in the, in the, in the surf, and just enjoying that, or just a, a sleep that was more than an hour or so. And I was actually in the process. I got halfway through the turn. I was turning to try to descend in orbit almost ready to start putting the gear down. They're trying to figure out who I was gonna to call to abort, that we're aborting and so forth, all that procedure you have to go through. And not a word of a lie. This is clear as day. My mother's voice, and it said, he says, Dick, you know goddamn well you're not gonna quit. So quit thinking about it. And, and I, says, I thought, Mom, you're right. So we did a 45 degree turn to the right, back on course. And I looked ahead at the dark Indian Ocean. And as the sun set and we flew into the night, I could see the southern tip of India. And with that coolant that was leaking. And I says, three or four hours from now, it's gonna be gone. The engine will overheat, turn red hot and quit. And I wish the hell I'd have landed back there. But we're not gonna quit. Thanks to Lane McGibbony and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You, too, can become an American Achiever.